Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us, uh, as we've just heard, uh, as your spirit writes on our hearts. And we ask tonight, as we look again at Jonah, uh, that you would continue to shape us more and more in the image of your son. Amen. During the Second World War, uh, Japan was running rampant over the Pacific and uh, occupying much of New Guinea. And so we hear stories about the Kokoda track and that sort of thing. Uh, Australia was seriously vulnerable to a direct invasion if the Japanese could capture the whole of New Guinea. They'd be able to just hop on little, you know, tiny little boats and pop across uh, the strait there and turn up in Queensland. So... uh, hence the importance of defending the Kokoda track, but also uh, there's the possibility of the Japanese going around New Guinea. You know, they did have boats. And so the military came up with a mission that would enable them to keep an eye on whether Japan was planning on moving troops by sea. They landed a small force on Goodenough Island, tiny little speck just off the east coast of PNG, But not so tiny that when I said tiny little speck no one's been to, at five o'clock we had someone who'd been to Goodenough Island. Anyway, anyone here want to claim it? Fantastic. Well, I can tell you all about it. It's uh, small, it's densely wooded, or do you say densely jungled, I don't know, uh, and fairly mountainous. But the idea was uh, we'd capture that and use that as our early warning system. Oh, good, he's getting ready for the Jared Butler thing. Just making you a bit self-conscious there. Sorry, Zach. Uh, The idea was we'd use it as an early warning system so that if the Japanese tried to encircle us, we'd see the boats coming and, you know, send a message. That makes lots of sense. Uh, The trouble was, if you put lots of troops on an island that size, then it's really easy to drop a bomb and be sure you'll hit someone. Uh, And so, uh, given that that was a bit of a risk and we didn't have the the men to spare anyway... uh, once we took the island off the Japanese, uh, you know, a short battle of a few days, uh, our troops built a few airstrips and observation posts, just kind of setting up the infrastructure we needed. But at the end of 1942, almost all of them were taken off the island. 75 men were left to garrison 687 square kilometres. But these are Australians, you know, we're, we're innovators, we invent you know, lawnmowers and hills hoists and so on. And so someone had the bright idea of pretending that our forces were stronger than they were. And so those 75 guys spent time building all these buildings that were just shells, you know, put up a fake barracks for all the troops that we don't have. And a field hospital, because there's so many people just coming down with the flu or whatever, we'll need that. Um, They chopped down trees and stripped all the branches off to just have the trunk, and then they'd bury them, kind of pointing at an angle, as if they were anti-aircraft guns. Uh, And even if we go to the next slide, you can see the barbed wire fencing that they put up around the perimeter of the encampment using jungle vines. Uh, At night, they would have extra cook fires lit just all over the place to make it look like there were lots of people having a barbecue. Uh, And then just to really kind of put the the icing on this particular cake, they'd scatter across the island and send each other really badly coded messages pretending it was, you know, one part of the brigade talking to another part of the brigade, talking to another... Basically just faking it. Uh, a brilliant, uh, brilliantly executed bluff, and the Japanese bought it. So Good Enough Island was left alone until the Allies came and reinforced it a few months later. 
Now that's a fun story and fun stories in wartime aren't easy to come by so that reduces the stock of others we can use but anyway. uh, But it also uh, reminds us I think about how we sometimes feel about sharing the gospel with people. That we're not good enough, there's the pun out of the way, we're not good enough at it. Uh, You know, we don't know all the answers, Uh, we do know how we don't quite measure up to how how God would like us to be so we feel a little bit like, you know, frauds talking about this stuff. We just don't feel adequate for what we already think is a pretty difficult task. And so we kind of like to leave it to others if we can. You know, bluff a bit if we have to and then duck for cover. And maybe if we can stall long enough, the opportunity will pass or the cavalry will arrive and someone better than us will come and take over the job. We're pretty insecure as proclaimers of the gospel. And that's where Jonah comes to our aid this evening. For a guy who spent the last couple of chapters trying to dodge the task of preaching in Nineveh, it seems like when he gets there, he doesn't have any trouble going about it. His message is really simple. You're done for. 40 more days, this city will be overturned, your goose is cooked, the writing's on the wall, your time has come, ha, 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 ha. Maybe um, Nelson from The Simpsons. Yeah. This isn't exactly normal tourist behaviour in Nineveh. You know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. When in Nineveh, tell them they're stuffed. It's not, it's not very polite. It looks like Jonah's decided that if he's going to be given the job of bearing the bad news, he might as well enjoy delivering it. He's got no particular love for the Ninevites, so if he's going to possibly die for blowing raspberries, well, he's going to go all out. Because the thing is, this is risky for him. He's not going to make any friends with this message. At best, he might hope to be run out of town, but at worst, well, it could get sticky. But what are we being told here? Uh, Most likely, if the only thing Jonah said was this one line, which is all of five words in the Hebrew, no one would have heard a thing. You know, they wouldn't have noticed he was speaking before he'd run out of words. So he must have had a longer speech to deliver. Otherwise, he could have been through the whole city and got it done by lunchtime instead of taking a few days to do it. So let's take it for granted that this is a summary we've been given. What does that tell us? Well, the thing about summaries is the stuff that's left once you've boiled it down had to have been there in the original. Uh, It tells us that Jonah absolutely, certainly, surely, definitely included the message of judgment in what he had to say. There might have been other stuff as well. He might have proclaimed that God's the creator, that he's just, that he's angry, that he's holy. He may have called the people to repentance or he may have exulted over them in this terrible display of spite. We don't know any of that, but we do know he told them judgment was coming. In other words, he told them the very thing that we find hardest to tell those we love. Nobody likes doing it. It sounds like we're condemning our friends and our family if we talk about it. But Jonah, he he doesn't blink. There he is in the midst of his enemies and he just dives right in. How is that? How is it that this so reluctant messenger can manage the thing that we find the hardest? 
you know, we, we said at the start that Jonah sets a really low bar and, you know, we can get over it. I think we aspire to be a little bit more, evangel- sorry, a little bit more enthusiastic than Jonah is. We want to at least be one rung above him in evangelistic fervour, surely. And yet he does this so easily and we struggle. How, how is he able to do that? The answer is, it's because he doesn't give two figs about the Ninevites. He's totally callous towards them. He doesn't care what they think at all. That's his secret. Now, sadly, sometimes Christians have followed this same method. You know, you go out there, you think, oh, well, I'm far, far superior to the world because I know God and they don't. What dummies? Uh, and, and people go out and, and kind of spout all the follies of the world. Aren't you stupid? How, how can you possibly live this way? Don't you know what's going on? That's why there's a phrase out there in the world, holier than thou because people have made that mistake in the past. That's not loving our enemies, that's loving, you know, making fun of our enemies. So we can't just mimic Jonah's approach for all its conciseness. Uh, It's not enough to just say, oh, well, the goal of being a Christian is to be just as callous as Jonah. That doesn't make sense. But maybe we can learn something from his callousness. It has the effect of having him care less about what the Ninevites think of him than what God thinks of him. Because he's he's got them down so low, he doesn't care less. He's not being particularly responsive to God, but God's still higher up the food chain there. Our insecurity in evangelism comes about because we worry too much about what others think of us when we should think more about what God thinks of us and what he thinks of them. We don't want to be callous, but we do want to get things in the right order. Because when you think about it, if you, if you kind of weigh it up in the, in the balance, our fears about what might happen when we're talking to people about Jesus and we compare that to saving people from eternal damnation, it's, it's not much of a challenge, is it, to work out which is more important. Now, 2 Corinthians, uh, we've been reading our way through and we get to our reading tonight, it actually puts a bit more uh, meat on this idea. So flip over, if you will, to uh, page 1160. And notice how, there at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 1, Paul's not really concerned about, about what people think of him. You know, there's this rhetorical question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Not really. He doesn't care. He doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need people to kind of give him the, the stamp of approval. He has the same lack of concern as Jonah when it comes to how people perceive him. He's more interested in the fruit of his ministry. And he points out how some of the Corinthians have responded to the gospel. That's far more interesting to him. Now, Paul's not callous towards the people in Corinth. You read the the two letters of the Corinthians, you'll see quite clearly that he loves them. But he is prioritising what matters. Why, why is it that we're concerned about people's opinion of us when it comes to evangelism? I think the answer is because deep down we believe that's going to affect how they respond to the message. If they don't like us, then how are they going to feel about the bad news of judgement? I don't think I'm overclaiming here by saying that I hope I'm slightly more attractive than the prospect of eternity in hell. No? I'd say that about all of you. I think you're slightly better to hang out with than all eternity in hell. 
if we can't win with the easy, then how do we get the hard? But the thing about uh, what Paul's saying here, verse 3 and verse 6, makes it clear it's the Spirit who gives life, not us. Oh, yeah, we kind of know that, but Paul's saying this is really helpful. He just has to preach the gospel and then it's all up to the Spirit to do his thing. In fact, in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 2, he makes the point that he's very careful not to distort the word of God because his job is just to be a messenger. And you know what messengers do? They deliver messages. You know, if you ordered something on Amazon and the robot at the shop packed in a box for you and stuck it in the post and it arrived at your door and along the way the courier thought, oh, I want one of those, took it out of the box and put his lunch wrapper instead, you'd be disappointed. That's not how messengers are supposed to do their thing. Paul's saying, that's all we are. We are messengers. We deliver the words we're given. We're not meant to hide the parts of the gospel that we find difficult or that we're worried that other people won't like. Because if we do, the word can't do its work. The spirit works through the word, but if we don't hand the word over, then he's kind of hampered a little bit. Our competence as messengers lies not in how attractive we are, how much we resemble Gerard Butler or someone else. That's not what matters. Our competence as messengers messengers is about how faithfully we deliver the message. We don't have to hide parts because we think, well, they're a bit scary or, or worrying. We just deliver the gospel and let God work with it. Because it's the Spirit who gives life. So actually, it's not even a a question of our competence at all. That's so far in the background. Verse 5 tells us our competence comes from God in any case. It's just something we don't have to worry about. He'll make us competent. He'll give us the words to say. Now, none of this makes us into callous people, you'll be pleased to know. But it does mean if we change our thinking about this along these lines we'll be worrying less about what our audience is thinking of us and we'll be thinking more about the message we're to give. Now, back to Jonah, because uh, he has something else to show us uh, in this passage. Because this is like sermon number 800 in the series, uh, chapter one might feel a long time ago. But just for for the moment, grab a finger on each hand and put one of them on the big one and one of them on the big three. And then notice, if you read those two opening verses, uh, well, opening pairs of verses, they're almost word for word the same. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The first time we're told, son of Amittai, just to narrow down how many Jonahs there are. The second time we're told, it's the second time, it's the same guy. And then, uh, what is the word? Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, proclaim to it the message, almost the same thing. It's clearly being depicted as a rerun. The first attempt with Jonah, that didn't go so well, he went off for a a sailing cruise and Gilligan's Island and all that sort of stuff, Uh, and so now he gets a second chance. And to ensure that we're paying attention and we spot that this one plays out differently, verse 3 kind of gives us a little bit of a a kick to notice it. 
That first sentence, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, this is only verse 3, so it's not too hard for us to remember. What was the word of the Lord again? Oh, go to the great city of Nineveh. Jonah obeyed that, so that means he went to Nineveh. Oh, and, and he went to Nineveh. Like we're told it twice, really, by the virtue of the fact that he's obeyed it, and then we're told it explicitly. It's really uh, making it easy for us to notice that Jonah's obedience is in view here compared to in chapter 1. In fact, in chapter 1, if you can stretch back that far, you remember you know, Rob Lowon and his treadmills and running machines and so on, and the question was, did Jonah have the get up and go to get up and go to Nineveh, and instead he went down, 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 down. Here in verse 3, literally, Jonah got up and, and went. It's exactly what he didn't do in chapter 1. So, we're being reminded here that God is a God of second chances. He's giving Jonah a second chance to get it right, and in doing that, he's giving the Ninevites a second chance as well, uh, by making sure they're warned. He's not a God who's callous, you know, spitefully mocking his creation while stamping his foot and insisting on having his way. This God who we worship is one who keeps giving us chance after chance after chance. He's incredibly gracious. And we kind of like that, don't we? You know, we like it that God's gracious and merciful and, and, uh, and forgiving. Uh, we value that in him and we're glad he's like that. And so, of course, it makes sense that we also will want to be like him. Uh, we won't want to be callous like Jonah. We want to be hopeful like God, more interested in creating opportunities for people to hear the gospel and repent. And it's for that very reason that we have to include the note of alarm when we're sharing the gospel. We have to warn people because we care about, we care about them, they're in danger. To be otherwise is to be extraordinarily unfeeling or callous. Some of you might have... Um, you know, been channel surfing at some point and uh, I don't know what time it's on, it keeps changing. There's a show on TV... Uh, Penn and Teller's Foolish. I don't know if you've seen it. Kind of fun. They're two magicians. Uh, Penn's the one who talks, which is good because I'm about to quote him and otherwise it would be a really boring quote. Um, Penn Gillette was raised in a Christian family. Right? So he's heard the gospel, he knows how it goes. Uh, he's rejected it, doesn't like it, but he understands its implications and so on. Uh, and he was quite happy to go on record as saying this. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't evangelise. I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to evangelise? How much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Now, it's a bit strong, but he's still making a reasonable point, isn't he? If we follow a God of second chances, then we should be offering lots of second chances to those around us as well. We don't just have a go once at telling them the gospel, oh, well, that didn't work, move on. Our heart should be to keep sharing with every opportunity that we get. The truth is, uh, despite how we might feel about evangelism, 
We are not like the Australians on Good Enough Island. We think we're not good enough. I want to say we're not on Good Enough. We're not trying to uh, bluff people into not attacking us because the reality is it's those who don't know God who are bluffing. They're the ones who are hiding behind flimsy fences armed with weapons that pack less punch than a pop gun. They know deep down that they have no guarantees that things will work out all right. They just try to wait life out and cross their fingers and hope everything kind of goes okay. They'll present as secure because there's lots of them trying to pull off this bluff. You know, I've got my home, I've got my job, my family, I've got friends, it's all going okay. But in a crisis, or if pushed, they know that all they've really got is bravado. And we know how fragile their position is. They're not some vast, unstoppable force. They're scattered and scared individuals marooned on a dangerous planet that seems to be trying to kill them, unable to help each other all that much. But nor are we, if we're not the, the, the bluffers on Good Enough Island, nor are we the attackers, the enemy, ready to come in and take captives and imprison people in internment camps that we call churches, you know, horrible places of barbaric treatment. That's not how we should think about it either. We represent the rescue team, the reinforcements who've been sent by the Supreme Commander to save them. It's no good if we ignore our orders and leave them to fend for themselves because one day the true enemy will turn up and claim them and they'll die and they'll have nothing with which to defend themselves against what comes next. Our fears and our insecurities about sharing the gospel, they're real. You know, we're not pretending that that's, uh, that that's not true. They're definitely real. We're scared. But we're misguided. Our role isn't actually that important. We're just messengers. You know, take envelope from one place, put it in another. That's a really simple task. We just deliver the message, we sound the alarm, we do it with compassion and clarity. To do otherwise is to hate men and women just like us, who have no hope except that which we are meant to bring. It's alright to be nervous, but when we're reminded we don't have to be that nervous, that's good news, we should take it on board. It's not easy because we're well trained by the world to think that you know, we're the minority and, uh, and they've got us outnumbered and encircled. It's the other way around. The Church of God is all over the world. There are people who know and love Jesus in every land, in every neighbourhood. And the good news is we're here to help. Let's pray. Our Father, you know our weaknesses and our fears and our frailties. You know that we want to please you, we want to help our friends and our family out, but we don't always feel up to it. So please do keep reminding us of how simple it is to just speak the truth 
and love those around us. To know that you are the one who does the work. And it's not a weight we can't bear. But as we share in that work with you, from time to time you'll give us the joy of seeing new life brought forth. And that will make every risk, every chance taken, seem so worthwhile. May you continue to grow our courage and confidence in you. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.